not the time to shirk. We can do it. Welcome to We Can Do It, a Canadian podcast focused on climate change, the environment, and nuclear energy. Welcome back to the podcast. Today I'm joined by Scott Luft, a writer and independent data manager producing data-driven analysis on public policy, primarily in the electricity sector. Scott is also a self-described trophy husband, model parent, former retailer, and social media addict. Scott, welcome to the program. It's great to be here. Thank you. So Scott, as, as you know, I think you've listened to a few of my podcasts. Um, I like to get a bit more of a, a personal introduction. You're mentioning you got the River uh, Severn behind you. Um, it's springtime. You might be uh, stuck in the front of a canoe uh, at your wife's command um, soon. But yeah, just, just give us some kind of personal anecdote. Help us understand you. Maybe how you got interested in, in energy in Ontario as well. Whatever you like. Well, I was, uh, I fell into retail first and that ended with uh, uh, 1993, no, 1998. And then I, I fell into uh, providing data for corporate real estate um, in Hamilton uh, with my brother, which is where I got really into the data-driven stuff. And by 2009, I was, um, I, I think, uh, trying to recover as a bit of a workaholic and concentrate more on my family. And my wife had returned to work full time. So uh, I quit everything, including uh, my worst habit, which was smoking. And, uh, and in order to keep up my data skills, I really got into electricity because I'd been fixing up an old house for uh, seven years at that point, not this one and uh, kept cutting my electricity usage. My bills weren't going down that much, which is one reason. The other reason, I grew up in the Sheridan homelands right beside Atomic Energy of Canada Limited. So those were, that was my neighborhood. That's, those were my people. And, uh, you know, when the GEA came in and they were really trying to knock off nuclear, that perked my interest a lot too. Mm-hmm. Uh, my perspective has always been an outsider's perspective, just biased towards kind of the nuclear team. Mm-hmm. Um, sold that house last year, and now I'm up on the river, which is uh, uh, the traditional homeland of my wife, whose uh, parents have owned this property for, uh, I don't know, 70 or 80 years. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So, so Scott, again, the reason I, I wanted to get in touch with you, you have a blog, um, it's called Cold Air. Um, how, how did that come about? Why is it called Cold Air? What's the, what's the story there? Uh, well, this is actually the parenting, really. I had uh, three sons, and I was looking at the uh, school rankings and the school ratings, and boys' writing was atrocious, but the reading was okay. And I'd always read... Uh, if you want your kids to read, you have books at home and that will pretty much take care of itself. And I thought I should write. If I want my kids to write, I should write. I don't know any of them ever really picked up writing, but from what I've read, they, you know, they're fairly, fairly good at it. But that was one reason to start the blogging. Like I said, I wanted, I had the data aptitude and uh, really I started the blog to start writing because I thought it's what fathers should do. That's cool. I mean, I'm a pretty new father, but uh, I do I do think a lot about kind of role modeling. And my boy's really, uh, really into cars and stuff right now. Everything's closed with COVID. So we go to this auto garage and kind of peer through the windows at the cars up on jacks. And uh, my, my buddy owns a motorcycle that we can kind of pop the, not the hood on, but you can look right. at all the engine and stuff. And it's, yeah, it's, it's funny it's driven me to get like, I, I'm not an engineering type, right? I'm a, I'm a doctor kind of humanities kind of guy. And uh, all of a sudden I'm studying internal combustion engines. So I can try and uh, break that down from he's two. So I'm, I'm right. getting a little tiger here, but I'm like, shit, why not try and explain this and pointing out pistons on like, you know, this is a hydraulic piston on, on his diggers and stuff. Anyway, I hear you. It's, uh, it's absolutely. It's awesome. Well, of course, I think it pretty quickly morphed into being about me and uh, sure, I mean, yeah. I, I learn so much writing yeah. and uh, really I think it's kind of funny when people talk about your blog and they think you had this perfect idea going in right? and like, like it started fully formed. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it's quite often not true as you, 
as yeah. you uh, as you write, you learn. Yeah. You, know, you question and you research and. Uh, yeah. So, so let, let's get highly into, recommended. Yeah, let's get into the kind of matter at hand. Um, we're both from Ontario. Um, Ontario's got a pretty interesting um, electricity system. Um, pretty unique, I think, um, within Canada, but but probably North America as well. Um, we're going to try and break down terms and things like that. But you know, we are a RTO, a, re a regulated transmission. Or I don't even know what that means properly. Um, but you know, we uh, have regional transmission organization. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We have this enormous amount of nuclear base load. Um, we've got some run of the river hydro. We've got one of the cleanest grids in the world. Um, we've got very expensive electricity. Um, we dump a lot of our electricity on other jurisdictions. I think we curtail a lot of our electricity. So it's interesting. I mean, we score really high on the emission side that might be endangered soon as we start losing some nuclear. Um, so I just wanted to kind of untangle this Gordian knot of understanding my own backyard. Um, and I think for our listeners, um, you know, some of which are very concerned about climate change and pathways to reducing our, our carbon emissions. Ontario is a very interesting case study, both as a complicated success um so yeah let's let's dive into that a little bit so the, the big thing i wanted to unpack is is the green energy act um but let's let's start with just kind of painting a bit of a picture you know ontario electricity for dummies um kind of where where we're at and and where we were at when the gea started i guess sure so let let me take it up to the ga because it will also take us outside of ontario a bit uh if we go back to uh, 1980, there was a Royal Commission, and it, it pretty much flushes out the history of it. So Ontario uh, had used up all its best hydro sites, it was looking at growth, and it was betting on nuclear, mainly because at that time, the questions were nuclear or coal. And you can see in the states, they were ditching nuclear plants and, and building coal plants at this time. Hmm. Ontario didn't really have any coal. Uh, except for some lignite way up north. Uh, and we had some, some history in nuclear. So that was 1980. At that point, they actually had Darlington already planned and started and were even thinking of a forest site. So from 1980, you kind of rolled back to dealing with what you had. And then when the recession hit in the late 80s, it really drove down demand. They slowed down Darlington's construction, but that's really here, neither here nor there, except uh, under public hydro, the rule was it couldn't make money and you couldn't charge for anything until it entered service. Hmm. So there was no way you wouldn't have a big debt when Bruce B and Darlington came online within like six or seven years. There was absolutely no way to avoid that. That's how it was structured. And just, just, for, comes just, for, online. just for international yeah. listeners um, and, and people who are unfamiliar with the Ontario, we have three major nuclear sites. Uh, Pickering is, is it the oldest? Three point, it was built as four gigawatts, I think. It's Pickering A, Bruce A, Pickering right. B, Bruce B. And then Darlington in the and then 80s Darlington. and 90s. Yeah. yeah. And, and Ontario nuclear is, is you know, we had, we had the largest nuclear plant in the world in the form of Bruce. These are really big multi-reactor units pumping out insane amounts of juice, but just, just as a backgrounder, sorry to interrupt, but just carry, carry on from no, where you were there. No, that's perfect. That's perfect. So last plant, early 1994, the last new build came online. Uh, the government of the day, which was NDP, freezes prices. And that price freeze stays in effect for nine years. Uh, during which a conservative government decides to privatize everything, which people in Ontario see as an Ontario thing, but this is what was going on throughout the states too. This kind of led to the Enron in California blackouts early, and, and that the privatization rage was just all over. Yeah. Ontario market starts. It's starved for power. It's got some price spikes the government immediately freezes rates again, which kills any possibility of new entrance to the market. So in 2005, you get this idea of the global adjustment to encourage, well, to get rid of coal so that they can have new builds. And what the global adjustment says is, we will charge consumers for the full price of your power 
regardless of how much you get on uh, what passes for a market. And then the government can contract whatever it wants. The global adjustment gives it a tool to recover the cost to pay suppliers with, um, which was fine and well-intentioned. But uh, come 2008 and 2009, you have a recession and you have a number of people who uh, infiltrate the government pretty well. Uh, particularly the uh, deputy premier and minister of energy at the time, George Smitherman. And uh, along with uh, David Suzuki, they bring a number of Germans over to meet the premier. And they convince the premier that this will be an economic stimulus if they basically copy what Germany had done with feed-in tariffs. And this is with the the energy when the, the this move away from nuclear and towards a 100% renewable. 100% the plan. And, you know, the, the intellectual concept in Germany was, you know, starting up, they think nuclear is no good. But they think uh, if you build wind and solar, you will make the variability of the system much greater and baseload won't be able to coexist. Right. So, so you get the uh, no, less nuclear, more wind and solar. And you get feed-in tariffs, which I think are a terrible economic uh, instrument and to just, build just as to, much. Yeah. Can you explain what a feed-in tariff is? Well, feed-in tariff just says we will give you priority on the grid, and we will guarantee a price, and we will buy it all from you for twenty years. So, uh, it, like, is that only ever been done for wind and solar, or is this something that's been done to encourage other forms of generation? Like it's, uh, well, I mean, they exist for hydro and every uh, as well, but um, certainly they were done to stimulate wind and solar here. Uh, and like they the were first, the, I feel like the first onto the grid rights seems very tailor made for intermittent sources because it's sort of like, well, we want to, you know, to be virtuous and green and low carbon, we want to maximize the use of this power source. So you get first go, and you know, who cares if we knock another reliable source off? off the grid. And I mean, that kind of makes sense if you have a fossil system and your, your renewables are, you know, sparing fuel. Um, you know, if your fuel is very expensive, like coal or natural gas, um, you use yet less of it, that's kind of good. But in Ontario, especially in early days, I heard um, wind used to bump into nuclear and actually we'd shut down reactors, which then took three days to start back up. Um, and we would burn gas in the meantime. And Paul Accioni was on and he was saying we actually, our emissions went up as we added wind. And, um, and we actually, you know, I think we ended up saving $200 million a year of gas when we said, no, 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 wind isn't allowed first on the grid. You can sort of be the cherry on the top of, the, of our baseload, which we're, we're a very baseload heavy system, right? Uh, yes. Um... Uh, things have got a lot more complicated for me since I started writing because, um, you know, I, I think I demonize other things less than I did, and it was a little easier. So I think definitely the grid rights were to give those things priority, to say those, those are the future. Mm -hmm. um, I know on the internet, a lot of people say, well, there's, there's zero marginal costs. They would bid into the offer stack first and get accepted first. And I guess those things would all be true if we had a true market, but we don't, you know, the global adjustment is 90% or more of the cost recovery or. So explain the, explain the, the global adjustment. I'm not sure if it's unique to Ontario, but can you explain that again? You sort of did, you were saying that um, it's, it's a, it's a means to encourage, um, you know, building more resources to, to fund that capital, but it's paid out differently to each source, right? Or relative to their production or just for dummies. Ontario, what is, what is Ontario global? has contracted pretty much every source. So, so say we buy uh, 10 of power, <laughs> whatever the units are 10, sure. it costs 10. And we sell that on the market, and on the market we recover two. <laughs> yeah. Then, then the system operator says we need eight more, and that's the global adjustment. And you divide it by the users on the system and charge them, so you recover the other eight. Mm -hmm. It's just the difference between what we agreed to pay people and what Ontario's version of a market. And who, who values it at? And who pays it? Is it just added on to everybody's bill? Is it 
so there's a number of classes in Ontario. If you're a large user, you will see it on your bill, either okay. as class A or class B. If you're a, uh, a smaller consumer with a regulated price plan where the government says it'll be 12 cents or, or, or whatever, that means somebody did a forecast of what everything's gonna cost and decided it would be 12 cents. So basically the global adjustments in there, <laughs> right? You know, you know, it could be three cents market, nine cents global adjustment or one cent market, 11 cents global adjustment. But your regulated price plan is basically a prediction of what the price plus the global adjustment will be. Okay, so it's factored That's in. That's probably not simple, but. <laughs> and when you and when you look at like, I know there's a lot of like, well, let's compare wind and solar and nuclear and gas and who gets what chunk of the global adjustment pie, that's going to be relative to how much juice they're putting on the grid, right? Because I've seen, well, nuclear is eating up a huge amount of the global adjustment. Yeah. So hopefully this isn't like nuclear, if nuclear costs nine mm -hmm. and the market gets two, nuclear's global adjustment is seven. It's big. Mm -hmm. but the consumer's paying 10. <laughs> okay. Right. So if nuclear costs nine and the market price was nine, nuclear share of the global adjustment would be zero. Right. So the nuclear global adjustment is very dependent on the price. Really a high share for nuclear says the price is near zero. Right. right. Whereas, whereas solar, you know, is, is 44 cents a kilowatt hour. So it would still be high if the price was nine on the market or the price was two on the market. You know, the solar doesn't move much. The nuclear moves an enormous amount depending on how depressed the market price is. And again, like I'm, I'm just getting my head around. Uh... This, is, this is why I prefer to talk total cost rather than the global adjustment. Yeah, I get you. The I nice thing that. about the global adjustment is it's available. It's the only thing the ISO releases. They don't release the total cost. They released the share of the global adjustment, okay. which, which makes the whole conversation awful. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a little confused just, uh, just trying to wrap my head around this. So I think you're getting into the GA. Um, you mentioned uh, Smitherman um, and yeah. these, these sort of German consultants that came in. Um, and was this, this was the birth of, of the GA? Because one thing I really want to touch on is you know, we, well, we have, in terms of what our structure is, we have a bunch of nuclear, like I think 10, 11, 12 gigawatts of nuclear. I think we have five gigawatts of hydro. It's run of river, not reservoir. So it basically has to work as kind of base load. It doesn't do a lot of peaking and things like that. We have a, a shit ton of gas, which we barely use. And then we have some wind and solar on top. We, you know, the gas is just, you know, for our spikes right now. Um, but why the hell do we have so much gas on the grid? Um, not not being used again. I think it's at like used at five percent of its capacity. Was that was that to accommodate wind and solar? I looked. It seemed like it was built largely before the Green Energy Act. Do you know what was going on there? So I'll move us forward again, just to go sure. back. The global adjustment exists so people can order what they want, and then four years later, five years later, uh, the the Jurgen Crittens and uh, other other Germans convince McGinty this is a good idea and say, we'll use this to order all of this that people will build for wind and solar. Um, sorry, I lost my train of thought there on gas. So what happens around the time of the Green Energy Act is uh, the people in Toronto say, we don't want any more gas here. Mm -hmm. And they fight a, a plant for the Oakville generating station which eventually gets moved to the other end of Lake Ontario and just started last year, mm -hmm. entered commercial operation. And the Mississauga generating station, which, which gets moved to the St. Clair River bordering the states. Okay. Um, and now what can you do? So this is where we talk about capacity value. So if you didn't wanna be Texas uh, the other week, last month, you want enough power at all times and if you want all this wind and all this solar, that's fine, but it does nothing for meeting peak demand in the winter. Mm -hmm. uh, solar's actually been quite a bit more valuable than I would have expected 10 years ago, but mm -hmm. 
But that aside, in the winter, which is when our energy use is highest, I mean, we use more electricity in the summer because gas is our heat in the winter. Right. So, right. so, uh, so electricity uh, peaks in the so summer. Once you can't build well, gas plants, I think that's what strangled uh, the government on ordering more wind and solar as much as anything. Because once you can't build gas plants, now they needed the nuclear to continue. Hmm. So we've kept all the nuclear operating because it provides a capacity value. It, it's, it, you know, you expect a lot from nuclear in cold snaps and warm snaps. So if there hadn't been the protests against the gas plants, more gas would have been built and it would have complemented the renewables and there'd be less nuclear. Is that your analysis? Yeah, there, there's about the same gas as there is renewables, you know, and they're pretty much, they're, they're, they're fairly close to one to one. Okay, so, so this, this does bring us to um, an organization, um, and I'm not sure like how influential, how much credit to give them, because in some ways they seem very marginal. Um, they they bark really loudly. Um, certain politicians, I think, pay a lot of attention. I've heard when the Ontario population is surveyed, no one knows about them, but this is the Ontario Clean Air Alliance. Um, and they had a big role to play in lobbying for a coal phase out in Ontario, um, their preferred solution for that was to build lots of gas, um, openly said that, took money from Union Gas and, and Enbridge Gas, which is bizarre because you're a clean air alliance. Um, you hate nuclear for some reason, which produces no air pollution, um, and you want to build gas. And you were just talking about you know, the, the residents of Oakville that were protesting um, gas plants. Um, and I want to kind of lobby a softball here, but one of the OCA, like there was an interesting moment here that you alerted <laughs> me to some time ago. So pitching you the softball here, tell, tell that story. Yeah, John. Yeah. Sorry. Jack Gibbons went out to Oakville to tell people, you know, we need this gas plant. And he's built. the chair of the Ontario and Clean Air Alliance. Yeah. He is. He is. Um, what was no, his was rationale? Reading. What was his rationale? Do you remember yeah, it's not as bad as coal and we don't want nuclear. So we need something firm. I mean, it is rationale. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> it's, okay. It's I, just, I, was, I was totally. It's just if you start off with, yeah. we can't have nuclear. Yeah. You need something firm. Yeah. What is his rationale today? I, I mean, I, I, I guess he misses the spotlight because I don't know what do you think's going to happen if you shut down all the gas today when you right uh, right yeah I mean you know, so, uh, in, in addition to pitching you this off I mean I've studied this article over and over again because it's just it's yeah. just the height of I don't know whether to call it irony or hypocrisy but he actually addresses the residents of Oakville basically you know is, is calling them out as NIMBY he says listen the the smokestacks will be high enough that there be barely any impacts from air pollution. And it's, he says it's good to build the power generators near the communities that are consuming the power because it reduces transmission, which is really interesting because <laughs> the new plan, because um, OCA is now, they've, I mean, they've always called for a nuclear phase out, but now they're calling for a gas phase out. They've done this kind of 180 and it's all about importing hydro from Quebec, which is going to take, it's a, it's a you know, power source that's quite a ways away. Um, and it's going to require a lot of transmission, which, you know, in, in 2009, when he was lecturing the residents of Oakville, who didn't want a power plant in their backyards, I think like 500 meters from a suburb, um, you know, he was saying, well, we don't want to waste resources on transmission. So I mean, it's like, it's just, it's a, a I was reading, story. I was reading one of their documents from 2012 on closing Pickering, and it was, you know, it can be replaced with imports and gas. You know, it's, it's, uh, you said gas then too, not water. Oh yeah. In 2012. <laughs> wow. yeah. So, so a lot of what they say is sort of true. And, uh, I mentioned learning stuff. The last piece I wrote for my blog really didn't come together and eventually just hit post to get it out of your life. Mm -hmm. But it was almost nihilistic looking at, well, we could burn far less gas and, and we should be able to, the system operator should be able to. And how's that? But it, but it would mean more coal in Michigan. Well, right. okay. this dysfunctional market allows exporters to buy electricity very cheap in Ontario to export to the states. Right. And how much do we export? Because like your, your analysis of Ontario is that we're like, we have a ton of baseload because of that nuclear and hydro. Um, and we end up, we end up, we do end up exporting a fair amount. Paul Accioni, I mean, that was a really funny discussion. He was saying, 
you know, a lot of the, the clean Ontario electricity is exported, I think, to like Ohio region and the Ohio valleys where there's a lot of coal plants. And so we almost pay a ransom not to get poisoned by their coal plants, which just geographically, the wind tends to blow from the Ohio Valley up into Ontario. So it's almost like an extortion thing where we pay for our clean air by almost giving them away electricity for free. That was kind of his analysis. And, and that's, it's, it's right. And it's bizarre, right? So if you're saying we should run our gas plants left and you go, but what does it matter? I mean, they're displacing either American gas plants or American coal plants. So, right. so, I mean, if you really want to do something important, um, uh, you, you've got to, I guess, when I started writing, people would say, you know, make like they were, uh, the way to be smart was to say, we could have uh, cheap or uh, a green or plentiful, but you can only have two or three. Hmm. And and if you want to make a difference, you really have to do three or three because, yeah. I mean, we could use less gas, but that means somebody else is using more gas or coal. <laughs> right. Um, so, so if you really want to make a universal difference, you got to do all three. And, and it's, it is interesting because, I mean, a lot of the Ontario Clean Airlines stuff, I mean, so their solution is in their fantasy world is basically shut down the nuclear, build a ton of wind and solar build an enormous transmission capability from Quebec, probably add on a gazillion more turbines onto the Quebec dams, be completely dependent on Quebec, and that somehow this is greener. Whereas right now, I mean, Quebec exports a ton of their hydro to New England, and it replaces gas and coal. New Brunswick's burning a bunch of coal. Like, you know, this whole think globally, act locally thing, air pollution doesn't respect political boundaries, climate doesn't respect political boundaries. And the, this idea of, of replacing, you know, ultra low carbon nuclear with ultra low carbon hydro. I mean, it's hypocritical and, and air pollution free hydro replacing air pollution free nuclear. I mean, it's, it's kind of asinine on a, you know, you can, you can sort of do this hyper regional thing and pretend that the world is a bubble around Ontario, but that's not how it works. Um, and, and we're in a time where if we're talking about electrifying more and more things, we need to actually build more. And I think that's, you're, you're quite a pragmatist, right? And I think you've sort of said, listen, Ontario doesn't need more stuff built we sort of got too much we need to use it differently i'm not sure where you kind of stand on the kind of climate concern spectrum and how much that factors into your your thinking but you know if we do want to electrify transportation or heating or other areas we're going to need more juice uh right and that would be see i would just put that as step one though <laughs> right right not not to build more juice because we did that and that didn't electrify heating or or electrify cars that just meant electricity got a lot more expensive and uh so so why you know did, my last house yeah. i put gas in my last house i yeah. lived all electric for 10 years right uh and and yeah i am a big on reducing emissions but yeah you know if you want to sell your house, you got to have gas in it. Right. So, <laughs> well, so I guess this, this yeah. is an area of a lot of controversy. And we've touched on a little bit with the global adjustment, but Ontario's electricity is pricey. It's, I'm not sure how it compares to our neighbors, but double maybe. Um, and well, what's, yeah. what's the, I mean, this is a, like such a load. What, what's the Coles notes on why that is? Is it because of the GEA? Is it because of nuclear? Is it because of some combination? Is it because, we it's, it's because of the mix right okay it's because of the mix so um maybe this is simpler I, it took me a long time to get to this point electricity demand is pretty much a standard distribution you know and if you have you know i i can define base load as the mean less one standard deviation and you can meet 80 percent of your demand with that mm -hmm. ontario's base load is higher than that but i'm just saying that's a very simple thing to do then when you introduce uh if you go to residual demand after wind or after solar it's mm -hmm. not a standard distribution anymore it's all over the place right and and you can meet less of that remaining stuff with i mean it just devalues base load a lot <laughs> you just right. you right. just get a lot of surpluses a lot of place and you have to because you've got this uh supply which is negative demand on everything else that's all over the place right so so we have a high base load then we introduce this other stuff and that doesn't do anything to reduce the need for firm supply which so, i would 
right? So, so you still need the gas. You still need yeah. everything else. You just need it in addition to your too much base load mm -hmm. and, and this variable stuff. So I've been obsessed with Václav Smil recently. Um, it's not all about Bill Gates, although Bill Gates does say he's kind of his favorite writer on energy and he, he kind of awaits with, uh, you know, much anticipation every new Václav Smil book. Václav, and I mean, these books are highly technical. Uh, I've, I've read a bit of them. Great stuff, but like thick, data thick. But one of the things right. he talks about is the German Ener Energiewende. And he, he really made it really understandable to me. He said, listen, in Germany, Demand has essentially been flat because deindustrialization and some efficiency measures. They started off, you know, in the early 2000s with about 90 gigawatts of what we'd call sort of traditional sources, nuclear, coal, gas, um, and maybe some oil. And then they built about 110 gigawatts of wind and solar. Um, and they still have the 90 gigawatts of traditional sources. So they've just built yeah. sort of two times the capacity in this whole parallel system, but they can't get rid of that 90 gig. I mean, they're getting rid of the nuclear portion, but they're building Nord Stream 2, a massive gas pipeline. They brought a new coal plant on online last year. Um, and so, you, yeah, you just have this total duplication and way more capacity. I mean, you know, because the wind and solar are doing this, it's, it's not, not reliable. So you need that backup as much as people fantasize about batteries and, you know, something, you know, green hydrogen to sort of smooth it out and eventually get rid of that 90 gigawatts that was already there it's it's so far it's not happening and is, is there a bit of a parallel with the green energy act in ontario yeah absolutely absolutely there's a great uh data presentation site energy-charts.de and you can go there and see the annual german capacity since i think 2000 and it's just, it's just like you stack wind and solar on top of what's always there and, yeah. and nothing else ever goes down. It just goes higher and higher and higher and higher. Yeah. Um, so obviously, I mean, if the denominator is not changing and the numerator is doing that, you're getting a lot less efficient. Yeah. Right. So there's this other feature, which is from my understanding, when uh, the Green Energy Act happened, we were kind of, you know, I guess we're still in this sort of like pretty neoliberal mindset in terms of governments. You know, previously, I think governments spent quite a bit building the nuclear and hydro infrastructure, but they said, hey, we want to build a whole bunch of clean energy stuff, but we don't want to foot the bill directly as the government. So we're going to give out these juicy, lucrative um, feed-in tariff contracts, you know, 20 years guaranteed at, I think it was what, 23 cents for wind and 44 for solar. Um, and so that entices the private sector to put the money down but then burdens, not the government, but the ratepayer with the cost of paying that off. Am I getting that right? right? Yeah, absolutely. So, so it, it became very easy money for investors. Um, and last year, wind was, wind was $2 billion alone in global adjustment last year. And solar was 1.7 plus whatever market revenue there was. So you're around $4 billion a year now. And are they, are they paid? Like, this is another thing I've heard of. They're paid for whatever they generate, even if it's curtailed. Is that correct? Yeah. 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 So you, you had a calculation yeah. that in April of 2020, you know, they produced <laughs> yeah. the, what was the value versus what they got paid? I can't remember. I, I, I have a, I think it was a hundred million difference, right? It was like 4 million. I think it was more than that. I think it was 5 million was the market value and like 165 million was the, the, what they got paid. Price. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I have a friend, uh, we're not really friends anymore because we, I started studying energy and then I, <laughs> anyway, he's, he's made millions and millions on um, developing contracts, getting Chinese investors um, and setting up solar and wind plants all over Ontario. And I mean, all of our friend group was like, this guy's a hero, right? Like he's a green hero. He's a renewables guy. And this is before I sort of started to develop a bit of a better literacy around energy. And then I started sort of beginning to challenge him on it. And then he got very defensive and we stopped talking. But yeah, when I, when I kind of look at how he's made his millions and, and what it's done for us, and also like, I, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a lefty. Uh, you know, I, I look at things through a, a lens of, you know, what's a regressive tax? What's a regressive policy? Like, let's not do that. Um, right. There's all sorts of, way that, of ways that poor people are disadvantaged just from even not having a grocery store nearby and having to buy stuff at a variety store that's more expensive or 
you know, getting a shit deal on interest rates at the bank because they don't, you know, the whole society yeah, is kind of set up to disadvantage people. But but, talk, but energy about, is a much greater share of their disposable income. Like raising walk, the cost of energy is regressive. Walk Just, me through how the Green Energy Act is is regressive in, in those ways. Give me some examples. Well, it, it's it's very simple. So, so you know, we should maybe define regressive because I don't think most people understand this. They'll say, "Well, a flat tax is not regressive; it's the same tax for everybody." And I'm right. going, "But, but if you make thirty thousand dollars, you know, and you need twenty four thousand to live, your disposable income is only six, <laughs> you know, right. and yet you're paying. You know, if you were paying a flat tax, you'd be paying tax on the whole thirty thousand. We don't do that in Canada." We tax, you know, higher incomes more because they have more disposable income to tax. Mm -hmm. uh, energy is, you know, a, a necessary cost that people generally can't avoid. So if you raise everybody's electricity prices, yes, it hurts the people with less disposable income more because it might wipe out all of their disposable income just to keep the lights on for one. And then the thing with the, the you know, the, the worst... The most regressive policies was the rooftop solar fits that paid uh, over $800 per megawatt hour, over 80 cents per megawatt hour. So if you could afford, if you, if you could afford the land to put solar on or the rooftop to put solar on, <laughs> you could get paid very, very well. And that, that's what like and almost the people almost who are like paying it are the poor people, <laughs> right? right? I mean, everybody's paying it, but but it's regressively paid and and the payment too is also regressive you're right. also only paying rich people <laughs> right 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 and they're paid for whatever they put on the grid no matter whether it's useful or not as well yeah yeah, yeah. and they okay. can say they have rooftop solar but they don't really cuz it has to be separately metered and it all goes into the grid right like like they don't use uh, today they would today you would have uh, you know they just they just the grid would take their excess when they had excess but right but not under the feeding tariff contracts how like what's your estimate on how much has been spent on the GEA to date with the tariffs with the whole bit like how much of oh I, I think if you just did four billion times twenty, I mean they're twenty-year contracts. They're four billion dollars a year now. Almost all of them are in service, so it's mm -hmm. eighty billion is is going to be spent. Um, and if the rationale was, terms, if the ration, if the rationale was to decarbonize, um, that's not been a great success. Like, what's the impact on emissions that this huge build out of wind and solar has had? Well, see, here's the danger internationally, right? Solar and wind are great if you have fuel in your system to displace, right? Right. So, so I don't want to discourage anything or make Ontario's um, experience, somebody else's experience. Sure. I mean, it, it is Germany's experience too, but it's not, uh, you know, I don't know if that's the experience in Kansas. It's probably not. Yeah. Right. So, so I, I think, and this was from Paul, you know, they called them, fuel displacement sources at once, uh, uh, the engineers, uh, OSPI. Yeah. So I, I thought that was a terrific term, fuel displacement. If you're, if you're getting near zero, you don't have any fuel to displace. Right, like, we have all this nuclear and run of the river hydro, so there's... I figure we have access 80% of the time. You know, 80% yeah. of all hours, we could meet demand with clean sources now. Wow. So... You could say, well, there's still some gas to displace. And you go, but 80% of the time there's not, and they're variable sources. So 80% of the time. <laughs> yeah. So very occasionally they match up, but they don't match up with our summer heat wave and they don't match up with our winter cold snaps, right? Um, like, when, especially well, when we, well like, solar would match our, our summer, summer heat waves. Yeah, sure. With sure. a capacity oh, factor of, of what, like, Yearly, it's like kind of 12, 13%, but I guess in summer, it's better. Yeah, I mean, I don't worry so much about capacity factor. I know I know nobody wants to pick up on capacity factor versus capacity value. Mm -hmm. But if it's not there when you need it, you need something else that is there. So, you know, 
if we had higher capacity value wind, you'd have a lower capacity value on the gas that accompanies the wind. <laughs> right. You know, you know what I mean? Which yeah. is good. You'd be, it means you're using less gas, but yeah. it doesn't mean you can replace the gas plant. Right. So, you know, you know my, I guess like my, my frustration as I learn more about this, and I mean, I'm not shy about being a, a nuclear advocate, um, especially in the context of, you know, decarbonization, <clears throat> I'm learning more about grids, which is, you know, scrambling my brain a little bit. But, you know, if that 80 billion had been spent, you know, to refurbish Pickering or even build new nuclear, um, I mean, these heavy, heavy nuclear systems do sometimes get a bit clumsy in terms of like you look, France heats a lot with nuclear. And so they have this enormous winter demand and they end up running their, their nukes at, you know, yearly capacity factors of like 65, 70% because they turn a lot of them off on weekends. They've kind of overbuilt for their summer. Um, you know, the way I, the way I look at like a renewables, like stay, basically turning, turning renewables into a grid that works is like filling in valleys, right? Um, you have a lot of times when it's not producing and you got to fill that in with something and for all intents and purposes, that's gas. And then, you know, a nuclear heavy system, you've got to build the little mountain peaks on top of, you know, on top of your baseload. And I, I, my sense is if, like, if you had to use gas for either, you're going to use a lot less gas for building little mountaintops on nuclear than filling in the valleys on wind and solar. Um, and, and it's interesting, like in terms of the people I hang out with these days, um, very much not into, you know, they're like, just, you know, we can, you know, nuclear is like infinite energy. Da, da, da. I'm not quite such a Promethean on that. Um, and I do think there's a role for sort of energy conservation um, and not so much, you know, like smart, smart grids in the sense that, yeah, you, when you have, you know, just trying to reduce peaks, I think is interesting. And, um, you know, cooling off the fridge an hour or two later and letting the thing, you know, move around a little bit to, to ease those peaks. Um, but if we need to charge, you know, electric vehicles at night, that's going to help smoothing those demand profiles. You know, am I, am I being super naive to think that, hey, if, even if we'd taken 40 billion from what we'd spend on the GEA and, and built either a bunch of, you know, can do sixes at, at Darlington, um, like, could that have decarbonized the grid for less money? Um, or am I being naive? And, and, you know, and using, you know, trying to use some of that excess capacity, like we always talk about, you know, well, you know, yes, when it's solar overproduced, sometimes we could turn that into hydrogen or something in those little weird off hours. And with nuclear, it just seems like you could do the same, it would be more predictable. Um, you know, I, well, I, there's I mean, like, a, I, yeah, I already gave my kind of 80% rule if you, you know, if we use yeah whatever uh 15,000 megawatts on average if you had 12,000 megawatts of base load um you know you wouldn't waste a whole lot mm -hmm. above that you know there's some things i i should have thought of earlier which i haven't um but if i say uh you know we export 18 and we waste like seven so that's 25 and Pickering puts out 21. So people go, we can get rid of Pickering. And, you know, cause there's four left, what would happen? I said, well, emissions would go up somewhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, you might use more gas here. They might use more coal in Michigan and Ohio. They might use more gas in New York, but, but yeah, if you have less nuclear, you have more emissions somewhere. Right. Uh, <laughs> it's, um, and I mean, I guess the same you know, argument could be like, I'm, tr I'm trying to keep a really open mind. The same argument could be made for like dramatically overproducing wind when we don't need it in spring and fall. Well, that electricity is going somewhere into the States and it's displacing coal and gas. So yeah, I've had that argument made to me. I mean, it's a very expensive yeah. way to do that. Um, I suggested years ago, we sell our, our, uh, uh, the wind output into Michigan, like back in 2013, 2014, just sell the contracts to them for five or six cents and take what you can and lose the rest. And we would have made billions and billions and billions if we just ate the loss when we first realized ooh, right. what a mistake we'd made. So, so <clears throat> I mean, I, I, I wasn't paying attention to the election cycle, but there was this, uh, apparently this pivotal sort of political moment. It was a woman whose house was heated with electricity. Her prices had gone through the roof and she was choosing groceries or heat in her house. Mm -hmm. um, is it accurate? I mean, there's, you know, this liberal government, McGinty and, and Wynn were in power. I mean, that was, every, all governments change over. I think Mark Twain said, politicians are like diapers. They need to be changed regularly and for the same reason. Um, so like political cycles are going to happen, but 
was the reason that the liberals got completely smashed. I mean, this was an establishment party that was always either in governance or second place. And they went from what, like a majority to like six seats or something. Was that, I mean, some people say that's largely because of the GA. Is that accurate? Uh, well, I, I'll tell you, I have a very unconventional view on this. <laughs> so, yeah, hit me with it. Um, it's not political to admit you made a mistake ever. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, people were outraged when McGinty, I don't know, it would have been 2011, maybe he got a minority government, even though he lost everywhere they'd put wind turbines. And then he got a majority again, the next election, people were still mad about rising electricity. Mm-hmm. I think what Wynne did is she said, yeah, we realize costs have gone way so high. So we're going to bribe you. We're going to take this big discount off your bills. And for some reason, people never forgave Win and, and add that on government debt, right? Is that how they did it? Yeah. The accounting but, maneuver. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she did. No, she did that Weasley Weasley trick. I shouldn't blame her. It was probably her finance minister that said, "We will take billions off your bill and we'll sell it in bonds that pay interest and pay it off in another twenty years or something." It was okay. some. It was some crazy scheme. Right. But a lot of people blame Win for what happened. And all the contracts pretty much were way before Win. There was right. a, a smattering of, uh, uh, I forget. There was one small procurement that I did have something nasty in the National Post on. But I mean, in terms of what happened in 2011, yeah. it was nothing. It was nothing. So as much as I hate to say it, I think Win was fundamentally punished. You know, maybe it was sexism and maybe it was homophobia. I don't know. People really came to despise her. Yeah. And they said it was because of energy prices. And I'm going, yeah, I think the only thing she really did is said we went too far. Right. (laughs) It was really her big mistake. (laughs) It's kind of a funny, like, personal anecdote. But uh, I I, win was very, uh, very, I don't think I've ever voted liberal, but she was very popular to me because, uh, she got rid of um, like she had a very progressive um, adjustment to like the Labor Act, which increased minimum wage, which I think is a good thing. Um, but also as a physician, as an emergency doctor, uh, she you know increased paid sick days and you didn't need a doctor's note anymore. And there's nothing that drives me more crazy than flu season. All these people with flu coming into the emergency department, coughing and sneezing all everybody to get a freaking note. Um you know, just a huge waste of healthcare resources. So I, I always liked her for that reason. And I, I thought yeah. I thought she got smashed down probably a little more than she deserved. But I mean, there's a long liberal legacy to sort of uh, to get. I mean, to I, the, I don't know. want to promote that party because I think with the new leader, they're right back to we'll never admit anything we did was wrong ever. Right, right. <laughs> but uh, and I guess that takes us to, um, you know, are we at risk of um, like a GEA happening federally? I, like are some of the same cast of characters that were involved in the Ontario GA moving on to the prime minister's office and what are, what are the risks and consequences of, of like this being rolled out on a, Oh, I got that. And one other question after that, what's the risk and consequences of that happening on a national level? Well, I don't, I mean, they couldn't do a global adjustment type thing nationally. And a lot of the stuff is provincial. I think, I understand there are billions. Well, let me say this. I've been here 10 or, years yeah. and being a contrarian, I'm still not an expert. Right. Uh, but the people I uh, beat a decade ago, I mean, all the nukes are still here and they did stop. You know, there's less wind contracted today than there was in August the 2011. Yeah. <laughs> so, so uh, and, and that's not, I'm not saying that's all me. There were lots of people who opposed wind and uh, for a variety of reasons but um but the people who introduced all that are still experts mm-hmm. you know marlo uh, reynolds i think is you know the top bureaucrat in the uh, the chief of staff in the ministry of the environment he was pembina you know they were major people driving supporting this stuff in ontario mm-hmm. and producing anti-nuclear stuff i think um there's a lot of analysis around sort of why people you know have lost lost faith in expertise and in the technocrats 
and in their in the political class and it seems to be because there's zero penalty to be, to be zero penalty to be paid for fucking up um and you know no one resigns anymore when there's a, i mean unless it's just out of the you know absolutely crazy stuff or it's a sexual harassment thing but for a policy error um no one no one resigns anymore right so there's there's a, a loss of respect and who cares if i vote because they're all assholes and they're all you know I, like if i screw up at work i get fired <clears throat> but these guys nothing happens they get promoted they you know well first of all i mean they made people 80 billion dollars they've got some, yeah, friends, they got some friends right yeah. but second of all you know i i work very hard with words now but people still i think judge things good or bad and they think environmentalist good and supports wind equals environmentalist supports solar equals environmentalist opposes nuclear equals environmentalist right and no matter how poor the quality of the work those people do they still retain that title of environmentalist and as long as they're making somebody money somewhere yeah uh, they get supported too you know i, I have a funny reflection <clears throat> Like if, if we want to like environment, you know, environmentalism, it's partially climate, it's partially, you know, um, water and local air pollution and um, et cetera, and waste and things like that. But, and, and I, I, uh, I, I'm not going to like disclose my political, I've sort of already have, I guess, my political posture, but I would hesitantly and maybe ironically call Ford one of the most environmental premiers we've had. Not, no, he wants to pave over the, uh, the, um, what do you call it? The green belt. You know, there's yeah. tons of stuff that's horrible for the environment that Ford wants to do, but by keeping Pickering open for four years, you know, he's, I think when Pickering closes, our, our emissions are going to go up by something like, I'm not sure if it's six or 12 million tons of CO2 per year. So if you wanted to look at it just in the isolation of, you know, environmentalism equals climate change and decreasing emissions, Ford has probably done more than, you know, if, if, if Pickering had been closed, if the conservatives hadn't fought to keep Pickering open for another four years, you know, million, like yeah. tens of millions of tons of CO2 extra, which is, I just think that a really fun, funny point of irony. Um, the world is not quite as, as cut and dry as, as we thought. Yeah. I, I mean, that's one thing as I get older and 10 years into this, I'm, you know, I'm much more into benefits and costs than I am into good or bad. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Just, just on the highway across the Holland Marsh, you know, I've talked to people who rant and rave about this. They go, but it did have an environmental assessment in 99. Not that I'm for it or against this, just he's not even going to do one. I go, but there was one done. Right. Like, I don't know how much that, that uh, science has changed in 21 years. Maybe it has. I don't know, but somebody would have to, you know, convince yeah. me. Yeah. Um, but the other thing was they're just going to kill the marsh. And I'm like looking at them going, like I, I live in cottage country. Yeah. I'm north of Barrie going, how many times have you driven the 400 through the Holland Marsh? Right. <laughs> how is, how is, you don't know there's a highway through the Holland Marsh. <laughs> Let's, uh, I have a closing question. And uh, so in Ontario, like federally, we have this carbon tax. I'm not sure if it's in place yet, but certainly the policy was every province needs to develop their own carbon tax or the feds will impose it. Um, you know, this, <laughs> this, I joke about the environmental premier, Doug Ford, conservative, kept pickering open, but, you know, super anti-carbon tax to the point of putting stickers on, you know, that gas stations have to have a sticker on the pump, basically towing the government line against carbon taxes. But in any case, from what I understand, that means that the feds impose their carbon tax. And now federally across the country, they're trying the federal government's trying to incentivize high emitting provinces like Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Nova Scotia to go from coal to gas. So the carbon tax, you know, I'm not sure if it's $50 a ton, it's not being applied to gas plants. Uh, and in terms of those provinces, because of this, you know, attempt to encourage rightly or wrongly coal to gas, you know, there's obviously some con controversy around fugitive emissions and how bet much better gas is for the climate on like a 20 year schedule, leave that aside. But that's being put onto Ontario now. And so we have a huge number of gas plants, I think 10 gigawatts, almost the same capacity as we have of nuclear. And from what I understand, unless those gas plants get run at something like 80% capacity factor, they're exempt. They don't pay the carbon tax. And so we're about to have our emissions skyrocket as we close Pickering. And the economics of that are crazy because if 
this natural gas at these gas plants was taxed at $50 a ton of carbon produced, gas would be hugely expensive and nuclear would be a much more attractive option. What Am I right on that? Do you know about that story? This was just, I, I heard this through the grapevine. Just, just that ties into something I missed from your last question. So let, let me start there. In the States, uh, you know, they've done a number of things, but the big subsidy is federal. And federal governments have the ability to print money, right? So, so in terms of will what they do in the states, what we do here, that would probably be a lot better. If they just said, we're going to give you two cents for every kilowatt hour of wind, um, that would probably be far better than a feed-in tariff, right? Yeah, yeah. Right? And if it was paid federally, it would be the level of government that actually has the fiscal capacity to raise money to do it, right. uh, which provinces don't have or do states. So that's just federal or, or provincial. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was always against cap and trade because it's basically uh, cap the people you don't like and trade the benefits to those who do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and Notley introduced this renewable program in Alberta. Yeah. She actually gave the renewable people the atmosphere, say, okay. We'll give people the first 400 grams free on a megawatt hour, uh, kilowatt hour. Um, but then they've got to pay to get credits okay. from somebody who's under 400 grams. Right. Okay. So basically what that said, if you run a coal plant, you have to buy the space for emissions from a solar or wind or legacy hydro. And they gave all this money to anybody who existed. About a, coal's about a thousand grams, or basically it's about a thousand. So, so they had to offset and basically pay wind and solar and hydro like a certain amount of money per whatever per gram to get down to four hundred, which right. would discourage so maybe coal like, and, and encourage other sources. Okay, yeah, yeah. But and natural yeah. gas kind of almost like natural gas is like I think around four ninety, so it it doesn't need to pay a ton off. It's no, no. Ton, what ton they were saying. The basic legislation said we are pricing a uh, combined cycle natural gas plant as the baseline. Uh If you're below that, you can get these credits to sell to people who are above that. Right. The federal government says, that's great. Let's do that everywhere. Right. But it has to be within the sector. And I'm going, well, Ontario's nuclear would be worth like, I don't know, $3 billion a year or something. Right. Right. But but Ontario doesn't do that. We just say if you're under 400 grams, you know, you don't pay, which is most of the gas plants here. So and and then, as I said, we have a market that doesn't really price things well. Mm-hmm. So so I I didn't get into this in my last call because it's so confusing, but I'm going we're exempting from a carbon tax the gas generation that we're exporting. Right. You're giving. Right free gas powered stuff well low price gas powered stuff to michigan right that you exempt from a carbon tax so it's it's as bad as cap and trade the point of a carbon tax was supposed to be you tax it and people don't do it yeah and then people can decide to pay for it or not say in ontario we set the bar at you know 200 grams then gas would pay and they'd subsidize nuclear mostly and some wind and solar or it, I wrote a piece. I don't even know when I wrote it. 2014, I think. I said you could have a hundred dollar. Nobody had ever heard of such a thing. A hundred dollar uh, a ton carbon tax in Ontario's yeah. electricity system today in 2014, and just use it to reduce the global adjustment. I mean, there's no not even a real end cost. All it would do is price emissions when gas bits into the market which i thought was the whole purpose right right <laughs> you know so, so let's just close i guess with uh we've talked a lot about the past a bit about the present <clears throat> where are things going pickering is um short of a miracle going to go offline 2024 2025 um gases i understand stepping in to fill the void what's the what's the future of ontario's grid looking like in your in your estimation i know no one has a crystal ball but in terms of well, i guess the mix in terms of carbon emissions in terms of price as i said i don't take the forecast all that seriously for what gas is going to do because as i said we we have a lot of spare 
and the ISO could control that a lot better, just drink our gas, but it really doesn't make any difference. It just instead of the plant running for Michigan, a Michigan plant runs. So, you know, it's, it's, but obviously if you shut down a nuclear plant, there's less, (laughs) you know, there's less carbon trivial emission power. Um, What's going to (sighs) happen? I, I mean, I honestly don't know. The government wanted to do it market wise on the, uh, capacity markets but they don't really get stuff built capacity markets keep old clunkers running you mm-hmm. know which is um which is fine maybe we've got a lot of old clunkers um really what we have to do is increase usage and i don't see us increasing usage unless we usage of what sorry electricity okay right yeah. you, you you need to get people to switch fuel to electricity yeah which is a global problem, you know? So people say, what are we gonna do in Ontario? It's just like, what are we gonna do in the world to switch from gas cars to to, uh, electric? So, I mean, if you ask me 14 months ago, I would be fully on board uh, electrifying public transit. Yeah. um, and, And avoiding personal vehicles altogether. Yeah. Uh, in urban areas obviously covid's really made that a hard hard go now yeah and now they still want to you know the government wants to spend money so they said we'll do the electrical vehicles for transit and going but but the key driver of transit is frequency so Mm -hmm. if you're pulling drivers out you know if 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 they can't afford to pay people (laughs) to to do the routes right i'm not sure how much use it is to have an electric bus on the route well like, these buses are driving around empty right now basically yeah yeah i mean right. hopefully that's so, going to change if, if we yeah so right now i'd just be holding on and trying to keep public infrastructure functioning mm-hmm. well you know is yeah. what i think i could do when we came out of things my first thing would still be electrifying public transportation yeah because transport is, is like 20 like in, in in globally it's not huge but in in north america particularly with big distances and that's love snow again is a hilarious thing about how the yeah. internal combustion engines got so much more efficient, but our, we've gone from like a one ton car to like three ton SUVs and pickups. And so the net sure. amount of gas burned is the same. Yeah. Transportation yeah, yeah. 25% of our emissions, right? Well, you, you know, we, when I said I wasn't that worried about the forecast of increasing gas, uh, personal transportation is about 10 times more emissions than electricity in Ontario. And so is home and commercial heating. Jesus. So, so I'm going, how is electricity the target for everything? <laughs> you know? right. When, when the uh, OCAA is saying, we got to get rid of the gas generators and going, you know, and, and this is where I feel kind of stuck in the space I'm associated with. Cause I'm yeah. going, this is not the big nut to crack here, you know, right. electrifying space heating uh, and water heating and and electrifying transportation are the big spaces. Right. But you need to electrify those with a low carbon source. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. But but nobody has the answer on how to electrify those things. I'm not you can't point to it and say, oh well, look at the success, you know, Germany's having or they're having or they're having. France? France has I think 55% of their their uh, rail is electrified. They're heated. Well, it, yeah. Electrified. But um, I heard a lot of their heat is not, and that's because a lot of the mass. But we could do a massive heat. spike in in the winter. Yeah. And heat. I mean, if they were doing heat pumps instead of resistance heating, it that would be different. Um, well, I love I love the electrify everything people, and I'm really into it now in this house. I I fully intend on having a heat pump before long. But then they say, but if it gets too cold, they switch to resistance heating. Which yeah. I'm going well. If everybody had a heat pump and they switched. Yeah, you know, at minus twenty, everybody together, yeah, you would crash a grid. <laughs> so, yeah. no, so I, mean, I intend on backing it up with fossil fuel, which gets to my point on Ontario electricity too. I mean, you can have a pretty secure space running on a heat pump, ninety nine percent of the time, right, and back it up with natural gas. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you know. back there. Scott, I think I think we should probably call it here because uh, 
this is a, a pretty technical topic and uh, I'm sure the listener after about an hour of this has uh, had enough and maybe we should break it into another conversation, but uh, I've learned a ton. Um, you know, I, I like that you, uh, you're super data driven. People should check out um, Cold Air, your, your blog. Um, if they want to deep dive this a little bit deeper, thank you for doing the work that you do. Cause I, I certainly don't have that data analysis, uh, up my sleeve. Um, it's nice to see it digested by you. And then I can sort of try and look cr critically at your work and see, if, you know, if I'm seeing any major holes or gaps or things I disagree with, but thank you for doing the service of processing the raw data. Cause there's not a lot of people that can, um, and thank you for making the time to, to come on the podcast. I appreciate you asking me and, uh, Love to see new enthusiasm and new people uh, picking <laughs> up the <laughs> torch. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, pleasure having hey. you, Scott. Thank you. Good luck, Chris. We can do it. We can do it. This is not the time to shirk. We can do it. Thank you so much for joining us on the We Can Do It podcast. Be sure to like, review, and subscribe.